Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, I want to welcome you back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Uh, here with, to be quite honest with you, uh, again another very surreal moment and I've, I've had a chance to uh, talk to Mike a lot and know him over the course of the years and to be honest, um, he is my fishing mentor, whether he likes it or not and I know he's giggling, but I'm here with Captain Mike McBride down here in Port Mansfield, Texas with my trout fishing mentor. Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, good grief, Chris. Well, welcome. Glad you can make it down to Port Mansfield Town. I guess we've got a lot to talk about. I'm not sure where we're going with this, so uh, just leave me and I'll try to follow you. You got it, Mike. Well, so for our followers that we have out there from Virginia to Texas, obviously known here in Texas, and you're going to punch me in the face after this, but uh, as a trout fishing legend here. And so, but for those that aren't familiar with Mike, why don't you go ahead and tell them a little bit about yourself? A little bit about myself. Oh, good heavens. Well, my claim to fame, I guess, is I just like to fish for trout and did quite a bit of it. Not as much as others, but more than a lot. No, I grew up in Kingsville. I'm south of the Oasis River, so I'm a South Texas boy. And I've done a lot of things and just decided at one point in my life, well, I've got such a passion here. Let's go ahead and dive in and do it professionally. So I did in a been in pursuit of the best fish that we could catch for a long time it's an interesting pursuit i've learned a lot not only about fishing but about life in general doing this and met a lot of great people and chris is one of them and uh there's not much to tell about me i'm just here and have a few fish stories to tell i guess that's about it on me yeah so i mean tell me a little bit about though so born and raised in kingsville yes uh, trophy now obviously one of the Mike McTrout McBride. <laughs> and uh, so tell us a little bit about, though, when were you first interested in targeting trout? And, and is that something you've always just pursued over the course of your angling career? No, we started off, you know, when we were kids, you know, four and five years old. And your mother would take you out to the King Ranch Pond. You'd perch jerk, you know, and catch catfish on worms. And then we started doing, and then we went to the creeks up there, our parents, and that was in the old days when you could still do this. Your parents would drop you off at a creek on the highway and with a little lunchbox and a thermos when you're eight, nine years old, you'd stay there all day long. So we went through that progression, but we moved from cactus and horny toads in Kingsville to Portland, Texas, um, my freshman year of high school. And I lived a half a block from the bay and uh, went, oh, wow, what a new ecosystem this is and i went out there and walked out there with an old redfin one day and i caught a big trout what i thought was a big trout it was about 22 inches to me it was huge and so that started kind of fueling a passion and he just you know went from there a little more a little more a little more um i think there's an old adage out there that when you first start fishing you want to catch the most fish that you can and as you progress you want to catch the biggest fish you can as you progress even more, you want to catch the most elusive. 
And I think I went down that path. Now, ever since then, I've tried to put all the sciences together and get out there and try to pattern these bigger fish. They don't leave tracks like deer. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to this. You know, what I do want to say, getting off of me, I want to talk about you, Chris. Um, This Dirty 30 Club that you're doing, I think it's remarkable. You're recruiting a lot of new anglers that have more respect for the environment, more respect for what's out there. And what I want you Dirty 30 boys to understand is we've, well, we get a lot of information and we've seen all the gill net studies and a true 30 inch trout is less than one half of 1% of the entire population. My God. So when y'all, you know, turn your stuff in and get your Dirty 30 sticker, you've done a remarkable thing statistically. And, um, and there's two ways to do this. You can catch them by accident. (laughs) Or you can get out there and learn the fishery and try to catch them on purpose. And that's what we've tried to do. And that's, to me, that's the whole game is, is trying to understand your quarry and getting out there and patting them and, you know, catching one on purpose. Uh, But I think that your program is exceptional. We just don't have a lot of people these days that are preaching. I, I use the word preaching, but are promoting responsible use and, and I think you're doing a great job and you're getting a lot of traction from a lot of great people. And I think it's just going to continue. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. So let, let's stay on that though. So with purpose, right. And that's something that we do here at Speckle Truth is a lot of the content we share. And that's actually part of our mission statement is actually developing as an angler and then growing as a sportsman. Right. And that developing as an angling component to that is understanding the nuances that are basically associated with targeting big fish. And so if, is there an approach that you use? Is there something that you do that basically increases the odds, right, to developing as an angler? So you, you talked about catching numbers to then target, catching big fish, then to targeting the most elusive fish. Is there something that you've done over the course of your time in terms of a study? Is it a study? Well, you know, I probably do have an answer for that. It's not going to be in one or two sentences, though. <laughs> we um, got a whole podcast. Well, well, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> but you asked me not too long ago, Mike. Why? What in the world? Where did you get your passion for speckled trout? And um, I'll start off there. There's a lot of target species out there that we can go for. Some guys are hard into walleye. Some into redfish. You know. You name it about Snook, the fish. Snook, oh gosh, heavens, yes. But here on the Texas coast, you know, to us, a trout was a holy grail. I mean, redfish, oh yeah, you see big schools of them. They're great to catch. They're wonderful to side cast uh, too, but on uh, that clear water. But trout were just a little different. And I think where my passion came from trout, to be honest with you, it was just the excuse to get out there in God's creation and experience nature to the fullest. I mean, to the fullest that you could experience, and it gives you an excuse. And we talked about this, Chris, about for you to dive into almost every science that there is. Everything you know, when you're a fisherman and you try to catch these fish on purpose, you become a pretty good weatherman, a pretty good meteorologist. So you study that, and then again, there's a lot of math involved here with statistics. And then, of course, biology, understanding, you know, what your fish do, what your bait fish do, what the grasses do. Physics is huge. Everything from, you know, your reel ratios to how much line you put on your reel to how wind affects current going through a cut, how heat transfers off of a winter sun-baked bank to the water and how fish might use that. So to me, trout fishing 
was just the excuse to get out there and experience this wonderful creation that God gave us and, you know, and try to reap the best rewards we could out of it. Um, but you understand more about, and that's what we try to preach is that, you know, I say preach, but really identify is that targeting these fish, you know, understanding cylinder, understanding moon phase, understanding tide, understanding wind. Those are the kind of intangibles actually of big trout fishing versus the actual tangibles of what you can control, which is actually making the cast and the presentation and the technique. And so that's what allures me to big trout and big trout in general. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. And you are too, is that as you continue to progress and develop as an angler, when you see a 30 inch fish, you know that there's science, you know that there's an understanding of a fishery all behind that one single picture of a big fish. And so it goes back to your kind of point, which is don't catch them on purpose, right? <laughs> Go catch them on purpose. And, you know, in a captain Trish and I guided down here, not nearly as long as a lot of others, but we've got a lot of man hours out on the water. And I think what we've noticed is there are a lot of great technicians out there, man, they can work that lure. They can make it do anything it wants to do and they can catch these bigger fish if they're on them. But to me, the whole game is getting on them in the first mm -hmm. place and predicting where they're going to be when that tells you where you need to be when. And that is going through all of these variables, you know, like lunar, uh, the solar deal, the yeah, weather, the barometer, thing. the water temperature. I mean, there's so many variables to look at. And to me, the whole game is being able to call it. OK, for example, where can I be in front of a drain when the tide first starts to drop out of a warming marsh? And the moon's coming up and it may be hundred miles away from here. Of course, we can't do that anymore. We have to stay close, mm -hmm. but it's, it's about being able to call your shots. Sure. And then when it pays off, you know, you've done the best you could. Uh, again, there's a lot of great technicians, but to me, there's so much, much more to it is being able to pattern and find these fish and get on them when they're vulnerable. And then comes your technique, your technical, sure. your, your technical part of it about putting a lure where it should be at the right speed and right depth. So, I mean, there's just a lot to this, Chris. I mean, there's a lot more than just anchoring up and put, chunking out and hoping something hits it. All right. So let's chase that rabbit a little bit. Talking about those feeding windows, right. And understanding that cylinder and presentation and the technical expertise, but being able to call that right. And so understanding those feeding windows, do you feel like those fish feed in small windows? And if they eat once, are they, kind of one and done or, or when they are in that wheat, that window, they're going to continue to eat until they're full until that window closes. Do you, are you a pretty firm believer in that theory, I guess? Well, we definitely see different opportunities out there where fish are more vulnerable than others. And there's a lot of triggers and yes, the solar table, we really believe in it. We think it's critical as far as moon, moon rise, moon overhead, moon set, moon underfoot. And we do see fish feeding more and more aggressively, but as the moon gets bigger and smaller and smaller windows. But there are so many overriding factors, such as barometer changes, temperature, sunlight, cloud cover, wind. But day in and day out, and we see deer move on the same premise. You know, you, you, there, I mean, we sit right here. We've got 10,000 deer here in town, and you can see the same thing. They're laying up under the trees. The cattle are laying under the trees. Nothing's going on. All of a sudden, everything's up and eating. We look over there. There's that, there's that big moon coming up. Mm -hmm. And so that's just one of the variables that we use. But yes, doing what we did, we're very fortunate to fish a lot of scientists and a lot of biologists. And we get to learn so much from them. 
And when these fish feed, well, let's say the worst thing you could do is tell your buddies, Hey man, I'm on, I'm coming out tomorrow. I'm on and we, we whacked them today. So what happens is when these fish feed very, very hard and larger trout, you know, at times tend to eat larger baits or what they're telling us is that it takes as many calories to consume a large bait than it does to catch it. So once they get fed and full, they will sit down and digest. And I don't care what you do, they're laid up and you are not going to catch those fish until it's time again. Now, while they're feeding, yes, we catch a bunch of big fish with a cork in his mouth and an eight-inch mullet's tail sticking out of it. You know, they're on a roll and they're doing their deal. But we do see periods of vulnerability and we do see a lot of down periods too. I mean, and that's all, again, part of the equation is, you know, when are they going to eat? When are they not going to eat? And you can pattern your your efforts after that. Um, gosh, Chris, you have opened up. You talk about a rabbit hole. This got a lot of tunnels in it, brother. Yeah. Um, and again, we do rely on solar feeding periods and stuff. And my suggestion is, you know, look at look at your data. You know, what's the moon doing? When's it coming? And try to beat your highest potential spot, spot during those periods. And that will help, you know, but it doesn't always work. But it's certainly a variable to to consider as so are many, many others. Yeah, that's what why we go back fishing, because you're never going to know everything. And so but we've somewhat seen that with the Dirty 30 data, because we do collect the date caught. Right. Mm -hmm. And that date caught. We're trying to correlate that a little bit to moon phase and understanding that and then also kind of backing up those theories. And so one of the theories and the, the thing that my dad's told me and growing up is the best time to catch a big trout is the week before the full moon. And kind of no other time really truly exists. That's your no kidding best time to do that. Well, over the course of the year or the two years that we've been collecting the data, we've seen um, the new moon be as productive as the full and around those moons, right? And so <clears throat> it goes back to, I think what we're trying to say is that there are multiple feeding windows throughout the course of a month and those big fish responding to those windows, well, that's true. And what your dad's seen is true for what he's doing. And it depends on where you're fishing and what the conditions are and everything else. But the full moon stuff, I'd be honest with you, I would much rather take a new moon. Um, and the reason I can say this is I think one thing that differentiates a couple of us apart from others is we fish for almost 20 years exclusively at night. And man, when you get out there at night, you hear everything, you see everything, you understand how much life is actually out there and what triggers them to move and what triggers, you know, what shuts them down, down, excuse me. And I know there's exceptions. Some people do extremely well in a big full moon at night. Uh, areas who got a lot of current, a lot of cover, a lot of bait, close to passes and whatnot. I get some guys doing very, but in it, day in and out, trout are not only super predators, they're super prey. And at night, every uh, when there's a big, bright, full moon, it's calm. I mean, everything just goes still. And now if you got cloud cover, that's something else. But what we've seen is five or six days before a full moon going into it, we see increased activity. And um, I'm sorry, we see increased activity. I'm banging on the table again. Uh, we see increased activity. And as far as I'm concerned, unless you're just got to go, you got to go. The week after a full moon, stay home and mow the yard. <laughs> I mean, they're just feeding it. They don't feed on bankers hours. They don't feed on our fishing hours and they yeah. do something different. 
Now, new moon, you can get away with a lot more. They'll feed several days after that. Of course, there's other variables too. A lot of people say, well, of course you're big moons. You've got bigger tides and you got better tide movement. Well, you daggum sure don't have that back in Baffin or down here. So the, the tidal movement on big moons in our areas are negligible. It's just something that we don't know about. But that's where the word lunatic came from. And, uh, and so seriously, in ancient religions, a lot of people have gone off of these moon phases and stuff. And back when man was much more attuned to nature, they were much more aware of that stuff. And so bringing that back into our modern life, you can actually see um, on things on the water happen. It, again, even on land, even the cattle stand up. You know, you see nature respond to that. And you tell me the man that can explain to you why and I'll buy him a drink somewhere. Uh, we just don't know certain things, but we chase these variables and we try to make sense out of them. Uh, and and but, you, you put the odds in your favor, right? And we, we've talked yeah. about this so many times mm -hmm. is that there's an equation to this to some extent, right? There's physics involved. There's all these various things that go into targeting these fish. And it, it goes back to, I think, your main point, your opening point, which is that's why they're so elusive that's why we're so passionate about it because there is so much more involved into targeting big fish well it's not very difficult i mean for example our base system is very very healthy you can go out there and catch as many dink trout as you want to which tells you the water quality is good the recruitment's good you know but these bigger fish are under siege and even uh, i mean we just taken so many out every coastal environment's pretty much under siege with more user groups and more people out on the water and more harvest and everything else. But even going back on the regular gillnet studies, the fish that we're trying to chase, these big, big fish, again, one half of 1% can be 29, 30 inches. And that's a different animal. And these little small, I call them dink trout. They're like little teenagers, mm -hmm. all tennis shoes and hormones. They're going to eat all day, every day. <laughs> These bigger fish are much more selective than that. They've been the route, you know, they're in a survival mode and they're going to eat, come up, eat when they do and drop back down to depths unknown. And so to me, the whole game is, is, is trying to pattern these bigger fish out just like these deer hunters. do. They're going to pattern out their massive old Boone and Crockett deer, but they have an advantage. They leave tracks. Our trout don't leave tracks. So we got to yeah. get out there and, you know, and put every variable to your advantage to work. And to me, that's, that's a big part of the whole inspiration on doing this is, is being able to call it and putting all these variables together. And I'm going to tell you one more time, there's a big difference between catching one of these fish on purpose. And as opposed to nine year old Susie holding up a nine pound trout saying, daddy, is this a big one? <laughs> daddy, is this a big one? And, um, but all right. So you, you kind of alluded to it, right? In a healthy base system, you have a bunch of dink trout, when did you start guiding down here in Port Mansfield? Way late. I didn't start guiding until 2003 or four, you know, but, you know, we fished, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of days per year for 20, 25 years before that, maybe longer than that. But I did not start professionally guiding with Captain Trisha till about late 03, 04. And so, again, I wasn't in it near as long as these other guys, like your buddy Jay Watkins that, you know, well, you know, you, know, you, know, you just interviewed Jay, you just interviewed Jay. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> he, that man has been guiding professionally, I think, for 39 years. Can't touch that. There's a song about that. Can't touch this. And um, so he's got so much 
a different knowledge base and we share stuff. But no, I did not guide all that long. But when you got five men in your boat over 200 days a year, and so does Trisha, that's a lot of man hours. Sure. And you get to gain a lot of information and see what works and what doesn't work. And But from that time, right, from the early times of your guiding endeavor, have you seen a change in the actual estuary and in, in down here in the Low Laguna? Tremendous. Tremendous. Um, well, I think it's common in most bay systems. Um, when I first got down here, if it looked good, it probably was. And you get in there and you had a tremendous chance to catch four or five pound trout, a six or and, and a kicker every now and then. If conditions are right and everything met. But we knew that they were there. And uh, we knew that we had a chance to do it. And as the years goes on and we see much more prop wash and prop scars and, you know, people launching and becoming very, very effective with GPSs and very effective baits. We have seen the, the numbers of size, how can I say this, go down. Yeah. And um, so, you know, for example, right now down here, there's as many small fish you want to catch. That mid-class, let's say between 21 and 25, is pretty elusive because it's kind of hard to catch the seven, eights, and nines, tens when you take all the three, fours, and fives out. And that's what people are doing these days. Do you um, feel like method of harvest, though, has kind of contributed to that? I, and I'm not trying to single out like croaker soakers no, or anything, no, no, but I'm no, just no. saying like it, it's just the evolution of the angler has, has grown, the amount of people. And so the amount of take versus the amount of kind of giving back has kind of over overarched well, let me rephrase that the amount of take versus the amount of giving back has taken precedence well i'll use your word evolution of an angler and what we've seen the last decade or decade and a half is we have a lot more efficient boats we've got boats that go places that <laughs> you shouldn't be going um very efficient effective um we've got extremely accurate GPSs. We have uh, weather information. Uh, we've got a lot of baits out there, whether it's plastic or natural that are very effective. And so what it's done in a combination of everything, it's made the angler much more effective in harvesting. And that's what most people do. I mean, you know, when old Bubba Bill goes out there fishing in a, you know, Mary at home wants a payback on that. Where's my fish? Right. And besides that, my, you know, Aunt Betty wants some fish too. And what about the church and, you know, and our neighbors? And so everybody's still in that big mode that I've got to bring meat home to justify my trip. Um, we're in a different position that we don't, I mean, we don't keep them anymore unless we're going to eat them that night or the next day. And we cut them, we didn't even think anything about it, but we understand. I mean, yeah, you want to bring your bounty home. We understand that, but my, my, not my issue, but my observation is there has just become so many of us out there harvesting fish that we're seeing a difference, you know, mm -hmm. as far as size goes and, um, especially I, numbers of size. And I would say it almost, we've talked a little bit about it, but it almost seems like the estuary is getting younger, right? Cause there aren't as much there aren't as many adults, quote unquote, adults of these big size fish, but you got a lot of teenagers running around. Right. And so the fact is that you just don't have what you once had from a, from a 
estuary years past of of those big fish and you were sharing a story where i mean going out there and catching five six and sevens that was a pretty common deal here oh yeah oh there's no question about it but you know and you can see it again you know we have a lot more science now a lot more data and you can see it on the 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 gillnet graphs Mm -hmm. uh you can see a, a very steep incline in in numbers in size and when they get to be 15 inches it lays over flat and starts dropping because once it gets to be legal size you know they're a lot of them are being taken out mm-hmm. and again that 30 inch trout does not grow you know out of a baggie yeah and so you know and what do you do i mean seriously what, what do you do and you do things like what you're doing is encourage people to put more sport back into sport fishing and um Take what you need and release the rest. That's what we- and I'll be real honest with you. I think Captain Trisha had a good point. Um, she's a gourmet cook, by the way. And she goes, Mike, are trout really that good? I said, well, yeah, they're they're pretty good. Um, they're pretty good. But, you know, what about, heck, black drum's better table fare than trout. I'll take a, a black drum over trout any day as far as red, I mean, flounder, ceviche on redfish. I mean, there's so many other species out there that we could target for food. But, you know, everybody's still in that little mindset about, you know, bringing home their limits. If they did, they did not have a successful trip unless they brought home limits of trout. And, uh, you know, we get it. That's been going on forever. But, you know, you're talking about evolving of an angler. It's also the evolving of a whole fishery. Yeah. Um, Did you go through that maturation process, though, of being a catch only catch and keep kind of only guy to being a responsible steward? And was there a certain time? Oh, or man. a certain instance that you were like, you know what, this has got to, I'm going to be a little bit different in terms of my approach. No. Oh man. There were so many times in the early years that we would absolutely catch and keep as most as biggest as we could. And we're going to be the heroes and go to the neighborhood, you know, and, um, well, Susan down there, you know, cleaned our house and Jay motor, you know, so we're going to feed them. We're going to take fish to the church. We're going to go to the, you know, feed Aunt Betty over there that's in a wheelchair. And so we're we're coming home looking for people to give these fish away to because there's no way we could yeah. even have the freezer space for this stuff. So, and that was our little hero stash. You go to the job place, your workplace. Hey, man, <laughs> you know, you know, I've been fishing a few days. I got 40 trout out there. And so you'd hand them out and you're the hero. Kind of reminds me of old Indian bucks bringing scalps on their belt back to the camp, you mm-hmm. know, and beating shells. Look what I did. Look what I did. <laughs> And, you know, and over time you go, what, what does a man really get out of this? You know, we can go out there and do that. And, but I've kind of changed from that. I will not give a, a grown man a fish if he is capable of going to Walmart, buying a fishing license and being able to go fishing. Now, if you're handicapped or something, we, we will give some fish away to, you know, some people like that. But no, it, it over time it changed. Um, instead of killing everything you possibly could, well, that became not the focus so much yeah. anymore, but that's the evolution of angler at first. You're going to do that. And we get it. You, we, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's Texas parks wildlife set a limit. Yeah. And that's what it is. If you're within that limit, you're good to go. And I feel that that's the case though. I mean, my dad, you know, he was on a podcast, obviously people, if you're out there listening, buddy, hey, we, we've talked about you a lot, but you know, that was the, that was the mentality. That's the the household that he grew up in. And so as his son, that's kind of what he was taught and he taught me. And then there was a time, um, actually it was in Port South Louisiana. It, I remember the day it was in the fall and we went out there 
And we just absolutely, it, you, you could cast wherever you wanted and you just caught them. And we continued to catch and keep. And obviously we were within the limits. And so we went out there the next day and we did it. And so we had a hundred trout, right? Uh, 50 trout per person um, for each of those days. And then when we got done fishing, we go home at the end of the weekend, right? And we enjoyed our time as father and son, but we had like six gallon bags full of fillets and looking at ourselves and like, what are we going to do with all these? And so that was at least a turning point for us to kind of look internally and go, hey, um, we really don't need to harvest as much. Uh, and so let's just basically take what we need and release the rest. And that's kind of what coined that phrase, at least internally to our uh, family. And then through the course of the speckled truth endeavor, meeting guys like you, Jay Watkins, David Rousey, Doc J. Wright, Doc Bob White, like all these guys that we've we've talked to, that's the mentality they've kind of come to realize is that taking what you need and releasing the rest is is responsible stewardship of a resource. Well, I don't know what's wrong with that, but the, the way Steve defines it. I just is, feel like we've gotten away from that a little bit to some yeah. extent fueled by social media. Well, what's needed to find is what do you really need? You know, and you know, what do you, if you got a big need, you got a big old family, y'all sure. are starving, we'll keep the daggum things. You know, we'll keep the smaller ones, but over time we started to realize how precious these bigger fish were. And you hold this big magnificent thing up there, I'm going to cut you loose, and, and next time I catch you, you're going to be an eight or a nine or ten. And But, yeah, as far as the meat thing goes, I mean, there is probably no more expensive meat in <laughs> yeah, this but- world. Then uh, a pound of speckled trout fillets when you consider your boat costs, your insurance, your fuel, your time. and uh, um, I mean, we're sitting right here on right here at Port Mansfield, right at the end of the canal and watching these, you know, 70, 80,000 dollar boats mm. going in and out of the marina. And it's uh, so you start factoring that. But I don't want to go all into that. The, the, the biggest thing is over the course of your time, have you seen a shift in that fishery from? I say early days, the early 2000s to now from a big trout fishery and and the rarity now of catching a 30 inch fish versus then. And have we contributed to that through the kind of harvesting instead of the responsible stewardship of taking what you need and releasing the rest? Well, of course we have. And uh, what's kind of amazing me now was all this new social media and all these new venues we have to get your information out. What kind of amazes me and it's saddening is you see all these guys, guides especially, bragging about catching a limit of 17-inch trout. And I can tell you this right now, brother. Back in the old days, we started catching those 17, 18, 19-inch trout, even 20s. We would leave. Let's get out of these dinks. <laughs> and uh, now everybody's bragging about getting a Well, and see, now we're seeing a ratio. Even the guys with bait, we're seeing them go through four, five, six fish to get one keeper. Hmm. And so, again, the fishery is very healthy. They're just not allowed to grow to maturity. Yeah. You know, and because again, and the only reason is because there's so many of us doing it and so many of us have gotten so effective. Well, you're going to have a, an effect out on the water. Um, you know, you're, you're going to see it. Yeah. Uh, it's just like if you go to a high fence deer ranch and kill all the three-year-old bucks, um, you know, what's going to happen? I, I don't know, but yes, we have a, a, a huge increase in participation out there yeah. and everybody's gotten very, very good at it. And, uh, and let's remember the old, the old horn of plenty has a diminishing end. Okay. It really does. And so you, th- you, you think that the fish population is unlimited. No, it's really not. Um, and there, 
so there was an article you wrote though, and I thought it was pretty telling. And so for those that don't know, Mike is, if you've not, and I share his articles, I've read them all. Um, and he, and we'll dive more into that here in a sec, but writing for, uh, Texas saltwater fishing magazine for many, many years, uh, but also writing before that, but there was an article that you wrote. It was talking about pillars of coal, uh, pillars of coal. Well, our editor, God bless him. He got here as fast as he could from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Everett Johnson, he's the owner operator of Texas Saltwater Fishing Magazine with his wife, Pam. And we, I, you know, worked very close to him for all these daggum years. Well, everybody from different regions has, di- has different ways of portraying lessons. And he told me one that hit me so hard that I wrote a whole article about it. It's called Pillars of Coal. And um, I do think it's interesting. I think it's applicable. Um, you still got a lot of guys today say, man, there's so many fish out there. We're just whacking them. We're whacking them. Well, the pillars of coal thing came from the old coal mining industry. And what the miners would do, they would find a vein of coal. And I mean, they would just mine it for all it's worth. I mean, get every. Well, what they would have to do is leave pillars to hold the shaft up, you know, and, and, and when it played out, well, they, well, they started backing out mining the pillars because that's all it was left. And I wrote this years ago, but I think we're seeing that. We're seeing everybody mining the pillars that are left that, that held the structure up because you get these stack up situations. And I'll give you an example like East Bay and Matagor. I mean, East Bay and Gallison right now, all the floodwaters mm-hmm. has pushed all the fish out to these certain reefs out there. Everybody's circling the wagons. Oh, the fishery's great. Yeah. You're fishing a pillar. And, um, and, and there's a similar situation talking with my dad right now. I mean, fishing in Louisiana, and they went through the speckled trout stock assessment just recently. And if you would ask him, based off of his observation of this year and his catch, uh, and he's tagging and releasing, but is based on his catch ratio, it's the highest it's ever been, considering he's tagged 12,000 trout over four years. So the fact that this year has been – the best summer that he's had in years that he's caught and targeted all those fish. But it goes back to that kind of stack up situation where the river's been super high. They open the spillway. And so you have inundation, a flood of this fresh water, and it stacks up the salt water into kind of certain areas. And, and those trout have tails. And you also wrote an article about that trout have tails hmm. and they know how to use them. And they basically is like shooting fish in a barrel. And, and again, his production was super high. And one of the things he shared was that, hey, uh, this isn't a true indication of the overall speckled trout assessment. And so we got to consider it kind of long term instead of the same. And so it kind of gets back to the pillars of coal. If you asked one person on their production this year, they'd be like, oh, man, it's amazing. But over the course of time, I, I would venture to say that you'd see a little bit of a diminishment in the Louisiana estuary based off of just over harvest to some extent, right? I mean, there's obviously other external factors, but here within the Texas fishery, I think there's some correlation there too. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, we are, I mean, my gosh, we had the best year we've ever had, according to some people. Well, why is that? Well, again, there's environmental factors. Fresh water will stack every fish up with a many, 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 many square miles into a certain area. So everything is there and you think the fishing's off the hook. Yeah. And because again, you've got a stack up situation and we see that quite a bit. Yeah. Again, that's a pillar. Yeah. So it's, it's fishing that's, a pillar. And um, so 
in line with that, so I, I want everybody to understand, you know, how, how long, so how long have you been writing in general? I didn't start writing until like 99. Mm-hmm. Um, how long have you been writing? Was that all for Texas Saltwater Fish no, Magazine? No, no. I started off with Gulf, the old Gulf Coast connections that Gene Baker had. And what was really cool about him, all, the, all these guys writing for him, and he didn't edit a dadgum thing. <laughs> If you misspelt a word and you wrote like you had three teeth in your head, uh, Ridge running from Arkansas or whatever, and uh, he let that stay. And what was really cool about that was you got to learn more about the people you were reading about. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really cool. He just let that fly. I started off with Gene. And then I went to with Tom Nix, the salt, uh, salty angler at a corpus, uh-huh. and was with him several years. And then Everett came in and... We talked about it, and he decided to buy Gene Baker's Gulf Coast Connections out, and we went with that for several years, and then we switched it, put a little slick cover on it, called it Texas Saltwater Fishing Magazine. <laughs> so, in a, you know, it was, a, it was a great run. Got to meet a lot of people. Um, again, doing what we're doing, you get to meet all these scientists and biologists yeah. and other fishermen, and and you get to share information and learn things, and uh, pretty interactive. Do so. you like? I mean, do you like to write? I know that's kind of maybe a rhetorical question, but I mean, honestly, I mean, do you have a writing background? Do you have a writing degree or, or anything along those lines? I mean, for me, I'm just a guy who's passionate about sharing that experience. And even though I'm from South Louisiana and that Louisiana education isn't necessarily the highest nationally, I try to string together a few sentences, which may be incoherent to most, but I'm just writing what's passionate, man, what's heartfelt. And so is that something you had or did you have some like technical uh, experience with writing and having taking courses or got a degree in that? Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, I used to write manuals at work and things like that, but it was technical stuff. And this is a whole different deal. Writing was very stressful for me uh, to try to find content that was worthy of people reading and not just a regular how to. This is how you tie a knot. Okay, we can read that anywhere. And, you know, just normal. So it was very stressful to me trying to come up, you know, with content that was worthy to read that would, you know, help the fishery period as far as not only fishermen, everything else. But, you know, we talked about this. There are a lot of writers that sometimes fish, but there are a lot of fishermen that sometimes write. Well, I was a fisherman that sometimes wrote. And it's even though you're not that skilled, if you're out there making stories every day and you got five men in your boat, that many man hours, your partners. And so you see all this stuff transpire and you've got passion about what you're writing about. It kind of works itself out. Sure. But yeah, I tried to write when I was a kid, my first day in first grade, I turned into short story. Matter of fact, I found that a few months ago. Did you really? You know, old mean old witch teacher's name was Mrs. Dora. And so, and she held that in front of the class, held it up like this. It said, look at this, look at this. You know, it was about a pirate ship in a storm sinking at night. And the ship was socking. Of course, my hand rhyme was horrible. I misspelled every dadgum word. And I mean, she destroyed me for years after that. And I would encourage teachers these days, if somebody tries to write something, let the kids write. Um, <laughs> but, Tom Rowland asked that question, at least to me, uh, yeah. in, in the podcast, he not about you, but about me. Was there a certain time that you were like, hey, I, I really like this writing deal? And similarly, I don't remember the teacher's name, but I remember being absolutely terrible at writing and, and to a large extent, I still am, right? No, I you're just, a good writer. I just, I, again, it's just passion, right, about just writing about. But 
there was a certain time with the same situation where it was just so horrible. She had to share it with everybody. And (laughs) exactly. I want to prove her wrong. Uh, Anyway, so but another article that I think is wildly popular and whether people realize it or not from various states is a an article I want to talk a little bit more about. It's called Beasts of Legend. Oh, good grief. I wrote that years ago. So tell tell everybody about kind of Beasts of Legend. Well, you're going to have to kind of remind me what that was even about. And I think what fueled that well, article. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give everybody a precursor to this. There was a cover. Well, let me phrase that. There was a picture associated with that. And so if you search for it now, you'd find the thumbnail. And everybody's seen it. And it was three trout skulls side by side by side. And one of them was, let's just, for lack of better terms, much larger than the other two. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and you get inspiration if you, you know, from writing from all kinds of different things. And sometimes it could be the simplest thing. And yeah, there was one day I was walking on the East Cut up there close to the Gulf. And I was walking around there, stumbling around old mud. And I saw something laying there. I said, what the heck is that thing? And I walked over there, and it was a fish skull. I said, well, that that looks pretty cool. That looks pretty big. So I stuck a stringer through its eyeballs and carried it around and took it home. Didn't think much about it for a couple, three months. And I said, you know, how big is that skull? And it was a trout skull. And by the way, that was confirmed by some scientists. So, well, let's find out next somebody next time somebody kills a big fish, well, we'll do an experiment. So, sure enough, somebody killed an almost 29. I mean, just choked it and mishandled it. So, I filleted it. Well, I cut the head off and threw it on a stringer out, out in the harbor. And two, three days later, I got a skull. And this is, mind you, this is almost a 29-inch trout. Yeah. And so, I went to go retrieve it. And I started, I told you this, I started pulling up, pulling up the stringer. Well, it was gone. Yeah. And I went, What? Well, that thing was so small, it was behind the float. I couldn't see it. And went, oh, really? And let's do that again. Yeah. So I think it had one close to 27. We did the same thing. And to be honest, there was very, very little difference between that 27, that 29 on skull and everything. But this behemoth that I found, and I should have taken a different picture. I should have taken from the rear that showed the spinal column. The spinal column on this thing was three times as big as that 29. The skull itself was three times, but the spinal column, we have no idea what kind of beast this was. And I sent it in our my, our scientists, biologist friends. They went, well, if those two are, are trout, that's not a trout. It's just too big. So, okay. Well, they came down and did some research one time. So I brought them over here to them and laid them out. And they looked at it, looked at it, looked at each other. And little Megan, um, who's a biologist at that time, working with Greg Stunts, looked at it. And she went in the bathroom and came back with about, with a bunch of toilet paper and wrapped that big skull in toilet paper and <laughs> gently put it in a box. And I haven't seen it since, but they confirmed it was a trout. So beast of legend. Yes, we all have our stories about seeing big fish, the one that got away. Um, heaven's sake, we all have those stories. But every now and then there's some tangible evidence of that. And for this thing to be three times as big as a 29-inch, we have no idea what it was. But, you know, it's just encouragement that, yes, here be dragons. You know, yeah. there are possibly big fish out there that we, we want to chase. And, and you, it was pretty encouraging. So do you think they still exist? Um, well, you want to think so. I mean, there's 
you want to think so. There's stories, you know, back in the freezes in the fifties and, you know, where they're picking up 40 inch trout in the land cut, they're dead and biologists doing that kind of stuff and other stories. But again, we don't have any tangible evidence of those fish, but we want to believe they exist. But here's that skull that gives you that little glimmer of hope, hope. little glimmer of hope that, yeah, just maybe if I do my homework and get out there and try hard enough. And that'd be the interesting part, right? Because to know if they do exist, I mean, there is a ton of hooks in the water. There's people everywhere. You would think it's like Bigfoot, right? I mean, you'd think one of those things would show up, but then you find that, right? And then you you kind of start to kind of internalize, well, where the heck do they go? What do they do? What do they eat? Do they become more, do they eat detritus? Do they eat dead things in the bottom? Do they just kind of cower or, or I don't know. Do right? they go nocturnal and parasitic? Are we not going to see them? Do they go places unknown? But it is kind of curious, Chris. It is kind of curious that Mike Blackwood's state record held in Baffin for what, over 20 years? And Bud Rowland, you know, what he kept 37 on his numero uno fly. And a lot of people discount that because he didn't bring the dead carcass in. But we have a lot of mutual friends. They say he's straight up, so we can believe. But anyway, you would think, just like he said, with all the hooks in the water, all the, in every basis there is, that somebody would beat that state record sooner but it hasn't happened yeah so you got to wonder do they exist if they do are we doing something wrong do we need to do something different is it is it a unicorn yeah (laughs) i don't know but it's worth the chase yeah yeah sure hey everyone i'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors as you know we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. All right, so uh, Mike, do you have, uh, and, and again, just being here with you as as my fishing mentor, do you have a, a mentor within the fishing industry? Now? Yeah, or ever. Was there somebody? Well, you, now, you know? it, uh, right now, it has to be Jay Watkins. I mean, that man's been out there for almost 40 years and seen every change there is, and is, he's just, you know he's a he's the guide's guide there's no question about it and we talk quite a bit he's become one of my best friends um listen to him i mean jay's the kind of guy that you get off the phone with and you just feel good you're not really sure why but you just feel good you feel positive but in the early days chris i was like you i read and consumed everything that there was to read and um and you know and this is back in the late 70s early 80s and stuff and early 80s you know, back where I was fishing the Galveston Bay system, well, you, you know, you'd read stuff from old Mickey Eastman and James Fogg throwing mirror lures in the winter and West Bay coves and then the Trinity Bay stuff. And you would, you know, and these guys are doing stuff that you just had not done. And uh, so you want to emulate that and try to figure out how they were doing stuff. And, and of course, back then we were chasing techniques and what lure to throw, which hell, you can catch them on a big pin if they're feeding. Um <laughs> But, you know, I did have one gentleman back in the early, early 80s. His name was Roland Williams. He was one of the original Trinity Bay guides. And he took me under his wing back then. And back then we were throwing hell. Our, our top water back then 
was a red fin and he was throwing a straight back red fin. We walk Hodges and a little hot, you know, at Trinity Bay and stuff. And, and he knew when to be where, and this is early, early, early on. And uh, he was one of my first ones, but no, after that, we kind of became loners Mm -hmm. and we kind of started not really paying a lot of attention to what everybody else was doing. We just did our own thing. Um, and again, trying to either prove or disprove what we'd read over the years. And we kind of did both of that, but everybody's got their own perspective on fishing. And so you try to, to learn from everybody out there who had been successful. And again, old, you know, Mickey and Plog and that whole bunch, you know, that was the gurus back in the Gallison Bay system back then. I mean, you, you knew Rudy Salty Plugger or Plugger. Oh, Rudy, Rudy, oh, I didn't, I mean, yeah, we exchanged pleasantries. I'd met him, you know, I knew him from the old sportsman downtown, read his books and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, he actually moved pretty close to my mother-in-law outside of Toledo by Pettis, Texas, you know, but Rudy's book's pretty interesting, but you know, he was back, he was fishing right after World War II. They were still like at San Luis Pass, they were still fishing, bomb craters you know when they used to practice bombs back in then of course his book wall to wall wall to wall but he was back in a in a and, and, and you know something this will bleed into what you're doing right now uh he saw four or five boats at Stanley Pass, so he got upset so he moved to port o'connor where he moved port lavaca then he got upset and then he ended up moving to chandelier islands because you know but he was used to just tremendous tremendous amounts of fish he fished a lot at night fish a lot in the winter at night he was an animal but what i thought was very interesting about rudy the plugger gagar and he even says in his book the whole entire his whole entire fishing career and we're talking about just after plastics became popular after world war ii Mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s he had only caught three trout over 10 pounds that's crazy that's crazy. Now I know, and you, and that's why I want your dirty thirty boys to understand how precious that fish is that you caught. And here is the guy that's fishing back then when there was no other traffic. Con, you know, environment was a natural, virgin system, pretty to some much. Extent, yeah, and he caught three trout over ten pounds in his whole career. That's crazy. And so that should tell us something. And I hear guys say, "Yeah, I've caught two hundred and sixty trout over thirty inches." No, you hadn't. <laughs> no, you haven't. So. So that, that begs the question. I mean, what's the biggest trout you ever caught? Man, I don't know. Um, a lot of people ask me that, and I don't know, because back in the old days, I got in on the tail end of this, on the very, very tail end where you measured fish on how many ice chests that you filled up. And we'd go, my heavens, look at that. looks like an alligator. And we didn't have boga grips. We didn't have check-it sticks. We didn't care. Um, but as far as just measuring a fish, no, mine's not that big. I got a 32 and a half, um, several thirties and stuff, but you know, I don't have any 12, 13 pound fish. And, um, you know, that's just such a rare, rare deal. But what was that question you asked me a while ago about? Mentor? Well, about mentoring and everything, but, but, but about measuring fish and. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that we require in a dirty 30 program is a, is an actual measurement of a fish to validate basically and kind of set the standard and enforce a standard. Right. But also there's a lot of claims to 30 inch fish, but when you can actually throw it out there and actually see a no kidding on a ruler or a check it stick or whatever, that the fish is indeed 30 inches again, how rare that actually is. And so this year alone we have as I think there's 87 
uh, dirty 30 entries. Last year was 59, and we hope to. That's pretty big. But you got to consider, though, this is nine states. This isn't just Texas. Now, Texas dominates the list, but you're also considering there are a lot of hooks, a lot of anglers from Port Isabel all the way up to Chesapeake Bay, right? And there is a lot of people in between. And I know we don't reach all those people with speckled truth, but on the same token is the 3.3 million people that we do reach, there's a lot of hooks in the water. You're you're reaching 3.3 million people, and I'm sitting here talking to you with that kind of stress. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, good grief. For, fortunately, yes, sir. Well, um, well, let's go back to the evolution of an angler, okay, and how you measure things. And let me start off by saying, you know, we have the CCA Star Tournament here, sure. and you turn in, you know, it's got minimums, eight-pound minimum, whatnot. Right. And we see so many six-pound fish come in, they think it's a 30-incher. And so we see a lot of embellishment going on. Either people either just don't know any better or they're not capable of measuring. But, you know, if you're a guide and you're promoting yourself, you're going to want to promote that fish. You're going to hold it up for pictures. You're going to put it this way and that way and put your sponsor's lure in its mouth. And yeah. you're going to do this where you got the right hat on, <laughs> yeah. the right shirt Angle. on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and everything. And so you're really going to want to promote that big fish that you caught. But I can tell you, for example, Jay Watkins. One of the first times I had him down here, Jay, you got to come. You got to come, man. So we're running along a shoreline over there, and we are burning over so many two to four pound trout. It's ridiculous. Just ridiculous. And Jay's going, stop, stop, stop. Wait, you know how Jay talks? You know, he's like, McBride, you got to stop. You got to stop. Look at the fish right here. Well, <laughs> and I said, no, Jay, those are not the ones we're looking for. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? And so we kept going and sure enough, you know, I found a color change in front of a little backwater area and we got out and, uh, he's throwing his coveted bass assassin. Uh, he's, a, he's definitely production oriented. I'm kind of different. I want to catch them how I want to catch them. Mm -hmm. If you want to eat my top water, well, I guess what? I'll go bowling. Um, <laughs> but you know, he's going to throw what he's confident in doing. It's the so, you know, so we're sitting there catching six pound fish and look at each other kind of laughing and throwing them over our shoulder. And, you know, just kind of like, you know, yeah. non-event type of deal. Well, you know, then I hear him yelling down there, McBride, 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 I, I got a toad, I got a toad, I got a toad. And he's like, woo, 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 woo. And I said, well, that looks pretty pretty good, Jay. And, uh, so I walk up there, and he's got a 10-and-a-half-pound trout on. And um, we looked at it and everything, and he held up a little bit. He wouldn't even let me take a picture of it. You know, it's kind of like, let's pitch it back and see what else is out here. Yeah. So you don't need that validation. You know, as you evolve as an angler and you know that, what you know, you just don't need that kind of validation anymore. You don't need the public or, you know, your friends to tell you, you, you just don't need that anymore. Seriously, he wouldn't even let me take a picture of it. Yeah. Um, but that goes back to you guys being conservation minded, right? I mean, the fact that, yeah, there's no real picture. There, there's no ego involved, right? And that's like the antithesis of today, right? Where ego is such a, a big part. And, and, and it's not everybody. I'm not trying to say, look, I, I'm talking about this. And honestly, I'm pointing the finger right back at myself, right? So don't anybody take offense. This is me. This is maybe a self-reflection of myself. But, but it goes back to that was, and that's why you guys are, for you guys are legends, man. And, and, and oh, it's a result of that. I know. And I'll I, give again, that a break. you're going to poke me in the eyes here. But, but it's just. Thanks for sharing that story because it, it, it goes to show 
that, yeah, those fish are incredibly rare, but it goes to show that your approach and in your mindset to a fish and to a fishery of taking care of it, of just releasing it, man, and then going back and, and doing it again and not bolstering the accolades based off, hey, I caught 259 30-inch fish over the course of my career. <laughs> it's really irrelevant to you guys. It's really about a no-kidding relationship you have with the fish itself, right? Well, can I, can I speak to that a little bit? In my honest opinion, which doesn't really count for much, but I think the more novice a fisherman is, the bigger his ego is. And look what I did. And as you get, as you mature into this sport endeavor, whatever you want to call it, you start realizing how small you're out there in the cosmos. And we were not conservation oriented at all. And until we started seeing how precious these bigger fish really were, we started, we need to kind of take care of this a little bit. But as you get, as you mature into the process to catch these bigger fish, you realize seriously what a small piece of sand you are in this whole cosmos. So it, it, you get more humble. So instead of your ego increasing, your humility increases because you realize that, you know, what a great gift it was to even be able to do that in the first place. And, um, you know, strutting around and, you know, putting these big fish up for yeah. promotional pictures and everything. That's fine. That's cool. Y'all do it. Y'all, but it gets to be a point where that's, it's secondary. It's secondary. It's, it's between you and the creator and the nature and nature. One of the things about it is, is that, you know, the reason we have all the pro staff and a promotional deals is because we have a fishery. And if we don't take care of that public resource and take care of that fishery, that they, it doesn't exist, right? They, they kind of go hand in, and they have to go hand in hand. Well, I, I think that you'll find Chris, that most of your, higher end players, most of your better sponsors are very conservation oriented, you know, and, and they know that it's a limited resource and, you know, you got to take care of it, you know, and it goes back to business. Otherwise, you don't have fishery, you don't have a business. Yep. And yep. so they're, they're interested, you know, in, in preserving the fishery. And we've got a lot of great people out there. I'm not going to name any names, but if you look seriously, you know, the better part of them are yep. concerned with, with con- a fishery continuing that we can continue to enjoy and have, hopes of catching better fish if you just take them all out well again let's go bowling yeah um, so I'll, i want to shift gears a little bit mike because i've known you now for i can't believe it seven years uh so yeah seven years i i can't believe that anyway but one of the things that really i know it's been seven years if you think about it um anyway one of the things that you mentioned you've written about it a couple of times i've even try to talk about it because it resonates with me and it and it will hopefully resonate with everybody listening here and that is your saying it's not the arrow it's the indian <laughs> well that's true it, it oh i give people grief all the time it ain't the arrow it's the indian and and it, it really is it's about and you're talking about techniques and certain lures and certain colors and this um Oh, heavens. I, again, I could catch him if I had a big pin with hooks on them and you in the right place, the right time, put the right depth, you're going to catch these fish. And so it's not so much, and I'm sorry, sponsors, but you know, it's, 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 it's a lot more to that there. And there's a guy down here. He's been down here forever and ever and ever. And I'll give him an example. Uh, I don't know him, but I've know of him. His name is Gilbert Vela and he's down in South Pottery and in the old days and people have copied him since he would do 
a little on the water seminar, he would nose rig a jalapeno and work it like a top water and mm-hmm. just slam these fish. And, and uh, trout? everything. Well, mostly reds, but trout too. And then he would take a bare hook and put a house key on it and go out there and cast those grass beds and catch trout. Hmm. And he's just trying to show people that, hey, there's a little more to this than just what you're buying off the rack. And it ain't the arrow, it's Indian. Yeah, to me, it's about profile, depth, speed. And that kind of gets back to our original discussion, which was understanding all the other variables and how important those play in and in lore and technique is really almost tertiary to some extent, right? Did you say tertiary? Okay, let me go get my dictionary. (laughs) That was about the largest (laughs) word I could think of, especially being from South Louisiana. So that that's the extent of the large words that I'll use. But anyway, but no, it's just my my point is, is like understanding all these other variables are way way i think more important than actually then it making the presentation using certain technique and then catching the fish but though that is that is a part of it but i want to kind of segue into what i call and it kind of wraps up the show before your parting shot and that is kind of three quick fire questions and they're kind of generally more fishing related and more f- specific to that. But- uh, Chris, we haven't even talked about fishing yet. <laughs> and uh, if you want to go there, that's fine. I think this is supposed to be a fishing show. Maybe we can accommodate that a little bit. <laughs> I think we talked a little bit about that. But so one of the questions I've asked, and it, it's a pretty static question, is if you had one lure, what would you throw? If I had one lure, what would it be? What would I throw? Well, I can tell you that if I was on naked and afraid, <laughs> I could do without the naked part, but what people do in that thing is pretty interesting. If I had to have one lure to throw to survive off of, it would probably be a, a and I don't throw them at all now, but I probably drop all the way back to a silver spoon. And I'll tell you why, because you can cast it a mile. You can put it anywhere you need to put it. You can do so many things with it. It's just a primordial instinct, a thing to hit a flash. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I like to throw other things, no doubt about it, but just survival. Or if I had to go catch fish, it would be something as simple as that. So if you had it, all right, let me, let me, t- question 1A is <laughs> if you had to go target trophy, if you had to go, if you needed one lure to go target trophy trout, what would it be? Well, I told you in the very beginning that almost every question you're going to ask me is going to end up with, it depends. <laughs> um, th- I don't think there's an absolute answer to that. You're not going to buy your skill off the rack and you're not going to say, cause I mean, there's been, as you call trophy trout, I'm not really hot on that term, Okay, but as you call big trout and stuff, big they trout. have been caught on everything imaginable. Um, and so it's more, uh, now there are certain lures out there that I, yes, I am able to put it where it needs to be with a correct profile, the right speed and depth that are easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I never was a much of a soft plastic guy. Now, Captain Trish is a paddle tail queen. I mean, that's what she's confident in and she can put it anywhere to do what she wants to do with it. But I never, like in the old days, I think we had Boone tout tail and we had a, Mr. Twister's sashy shad that was a big paddle tail. And we used that, you know, but it, it, but once we started getting into red fins and mirror lures, and all of a sudden the jumping minute came out, well, we never looked back. So I've always yeah. been a plugger type guy. You know, that's my wheelhouse. 
But if I had one lure to throw for trophy, for ugh, trophy trophy. I gotcha. Uh, um, well, it'd have to be two, two of them. Okay. Either something that floated or something that sank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, right now, it's, it's just going to be a, a top water of some kind, either big, little, or large, depending on your conditions, or something that sinks. And I'm going to have to go to a corky because a fat boy, I can do so many things with it, and it's so versatile, I can put it anywhere I want to put it, fish it how I want to put it. Um, but now that stinking little Jay Watkins and him and Lowell and, him and Eric Botnick with Mirror had that double D coming out. Oh, man, that's a... And uh, it's basically a, a fat boy that floats. You can pull it down and do stuff with it. I'm really looking forward to catching a lot of big fish on this winter. But you know something? It all goes back on my personal preferences. I want to catch fish how I want to catch them. And I'm sure there's a lot of things I can throw that catch more fish than yeah. I do. But again, again, I you know, I want to make them eat what I want. I'm, I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, but it, maybe it's a pride thing or maybe it's, it goes back to, right, there's... I don't know if it's a pride no, thing. No, no, I think it, it's a challenge yeah, thing. Yeah, a challenge thing. Yeah, and that's perfect because you go from wanting to catch them, right, and then presenting whatever they're eating, and then that kind of next level is, no kidding, making them eat truly what they don't want to eat, which then goes back to angling, um, I wouldn't say experience, but experience of being able to work a lure a certain way to trigger some sort of response from a fish that totally doesn't want to play, right? Well, I'll get in there where I think they are and I'll throw something that I will try to make them want to eat it. And um, again, I mean, you go out there with probably a, a beer pop top with a hook on it. You know, if you put it in the right place at the right time, they're going to hit it. So that's all subjective and everybody has their favorite lures and they got their favorite stuff how they want to catch. There's a lot of loyalty out there to certain lures. And, you know, a lot of them work very, very, very well. It's all down to the personal preference. But to me, the bigger part of this equation is knowing when to be where and what they're doing. After you get in there and you're on these fish and they're vulnerable, there's a lot of things you can do to catch them. I just have a personal preference. This is how I want to catch them, which can, you know, go completely against what other people want to do. But that's another beauty about fishing. It's a personal thing. You can do whatever you want to do. And I think that's why you hate when I say trophy, if I've heard <laughs> you right, because everybody's definition of trophy is different. Well, right now, a bunch of these people down here think anything over 17-inch trout's a trophy. <laughs> Uh, look what we did. We caught a limit of fish between 17 and 19. Well, okay. Okay. Good for y'all. Uh, to me, what is a trophy? And again, well, I think to most people, it, it's bettering their per personal best or PB. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a 23 inch trout and you catch a 24 mm -hmm. to you, that's a trophy, right? You've, you increased, you've bettered your production in terms of size and quality. And, and that might be something that they've tried to do on purpose. And that just means more. Or it could be a guy out there trying to catch like, like me. I mean, I don't really have a definition of trophy. The the thirty inch fish I caught the other day with my son. Of course, it's a thirty inch fish, but the trophy component to that was being with my son, and the, the experience and the size and quality of fish. There you go. And his vision and his excitement for me and for him and to kind of share that notionally. That's what I defined it. That was a true trophy. That thing only weighed seven point two eight pounds. And again, it's 30 inches and that's a, that's a fish of a lifetime, no doubt, but it just meant more.
because of the situation. Well, there you go. And a lot of this, as far as a trophy or let's, let's change trophy to a memory has to do Fair with the conditions yeah. called it, man, we were there right before that northern hit. We could feel the barometer change. The wind started kicking up. We saw the mullet flash and all of a sudden we've been catching these small fish. Here's this big one. And so it's about, you know, prolonged memories and stuff. A trophy fish is very hard to measure. Some days, in fishing, a 20-inch trout is a trophy. Yeah. So it's all relative to what's been going on, what your personal best is. And so there's no measurement yeah. on that. So um, I, just, I, th- I think that's why you, for, if I know you well enough, huh. that's why you don't like the word trophy is because it's so relative, right? And so subjective. It so, is It is very subjective. And so, All right. So in line with the lore, uh, do you have color preferences or, or is there a certain color that you like to throw? Yes and no. <laughs> it depends. It depends. <laughs> and that's my, that, that is my answer and I'm sticking to it. It depends. You know, my heavens, there is the, the, the color spectrum on these lures is just insane. We really don't know what they see. And if you look at scientific data, and drop these colors down in the water. The red's the first one to go. It's like a red snapper, for example, down at depth, it's gray. Hmm. And so these colors change at depth. We don't know what they see. I mean, have you ever seen a bubblegum pink mullet? Um, I mean, it's, so to me, color is all dependent on conditions. Can they see it or is it too much? Um, in other words, does it spook them off or can they see enough in muddy, muddier water? But, you know, I, I tend to st- stick to really basic stuff. Um, like on a corgi, for example, I, you know, hate to tell you guys this, but I don't need much more than a pearl with a chartreuse back on it. And that, that, that white just kind of show it does it great in clear water and murky water and muddy water. It's profile. And it's profile. And on a top water, oh, good grief. Yeah, there's all this talk about flash and this and that. Oh, you got to. Okay, let me tell you boys one thing right now. You night fishermen, you've got to throw black at night. That's the biggest bunch of corn bull I think I've ever heard in my life. If, if you're a fish and you're looking up at night, everything looks dark. It's a silhouette. It's, you don't need to throw black. Um, we caught some of our better fish at night in the early years off an old um, jumping minute. It was called a, oh, dadgummit, what's that name? It was a reflective deal. Is it like a clear? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. Um, I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it had a re- real reflective surface. And we've done extremely well at night with, with chrome. You huh. just moonlight reflect on it, but you don't need to. So color is, is to me, that's secondary from a lot of things. And, I, you know, and I'll, I'll just go to basics. If it's dirty, muddy water, I'll throw something dark, either a plum chartreuse, which is probably what I'm going to throw, or yeah. a black. Or if it's clear water, you back it way off. Yeah. But as far as, as far as having a wheelbarrow full of baits out there for a day, no, I'm going to stick to baits. Something dark, something light, something big, something little, and be done with it. Um, cool. So I'm really, I'm not that big of a color fanatic. I know that as fishermen, a lot of times we're more lure collectors than we are lure users. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. Look at my stash. Okay, well, when it comes down to push, come shove, what are you throwing? Yeah. And, um, well, cool. So, um, thank you. Thank you for that. I've only asked you two and, uh, I wanted to just keep it at two cause that's a, a lot of valuable information. I know we're button up against time. I know you got some, some things to do. And we talked a, a lot about fishing, a lot about conservation, 
And uh, I just want to say thanks, Mike, for for letting me be here, for letting me be your friend, for mentoring me throughout the course of my time. And and what I always do and try to do, especially with you guys, is kind of give you a parting shot, right? If if as you talk to the listeners out there, what's something that you want to kind of leave them with as we leave this podcast? So um, over to you, sir, for your parting shot. A parting shot. That sounds like I'm going to get wounded. <laughs> um, <laughs> good heavens. I don't know, but Trish, I mean, Chris, we didn't talk about hardly anything on this. We just kind of threw the wind back and forth. We didn't talk about much. We didn't talk about anything about techniques or about this or about that. And it's just kind of a general fishing discussion, but I appreciate you coming down. I appreciate, especially appreciate what you're doing. And so do a lot of us about again, recruiting, new anglers to appreciate more of what we have out there instead of doing what everybody's done in the years. And the only appreciation you really had for fishing was how much meat you brought home during the day, which is fine, but there's so much more to it than that. Sure. And what I do want your, your participants, uh, again, I brought this up is to understand on how absolutely special and precious that 30 fish is again, just on pure statistics on how rare they are. And, when you start catching them on purpose, now you're gone from a fisherman to an angler, you know, and that's just really cool stuff. And you're promoting that again, you're getting a lot of traction. Um, and we need somebody like you and we have not had that. And so, you know, whatever we can do to help, wish you the best of luck in the world. You know, maybe you and Peepaw can come down this Heck winter yeah. and we can try to put some of this to practice. Let's do it. But, um, I, I will say this, right. Our podcast, the long-term goal is for this to be long-standing, right? And so even though we may have not gotten into the technique, right, or <laughs> to the other things that more fishing, quote-unquote fishing related in terms of targeting a fish or, or, or that. Are you talking about how-to stuff? I despise how-to stuff. No, I'm not stuff. saying how-to. Everybody I'm talking has about their own your, <laughs> your theory, right, and your approach to things that's different. But we want this to be a long-standing thing. And so um, – I can, t- I, you know, I, honestly, I'd love to have you on again, you know, and we can talk more about that. That would be, that'd be amazing. So if you're up to it, we'd love to have you on the podcast again and continue the dialogue, right? Well, maybe next time I'll have something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do this. Let's do this, right? So as this is September, the end of September, going into October, we haven't had a, a cool snap yet. And as we start to kind of dust off the Sims waiters and we start to kind of fix some pinholes here and there and waiting, anticipating, uh, our cool, our cool snap and our cool season. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get out there, man. And let's go ahead and start kind of making those memories, if you will, and talk about them. Right. Well, how about, time. how about this? Uh, December is one of my favorite months is to it? fish. Okay. It really is. The water's cool down. The, the weather is clement. You have, you know, 10 or so days between northers. The weather is awesome. The fish are already staged where they should be. And we think, well, that's a whole different subject. We think a lot of that's photo period, not temperature. They know to be where they're supposed to be. In Interesting. So God. December, there's not many, many people here. It's just beautiful weather. We can catch. So why don't we do this? Why don't we talk about December? Okay. Y'all coming down. And after we fish, Let's then we'll it. sit down when we're a little bit more inspired than sitting up here in a stuffy old condo looking out the window at water. <laughs> And it'd be a lot better if we could record this on the water. I know. Um, we but, need Wi-Fi. We need Wi-Fi, Mike. 
So that's the unfortunate reality about it. But mm-hmm. I do agree. Let's if if you're up to it, Peepaw, I'll I'll get with Peepaw, man. We'll get him down here. He's turning. He's 73, 73 years old, and man, I, that guy can wave with the best of them, bad hip and all, or replaced hip and all. But yeah, if if you're cool with that, I'd love to come back in December and let's do it again. Well, again, I think it's a prime time to do it. You know, you're, you've got a little transition. I hate that word transition, by the way. Everything's a transition. But you got a little period there where, the you know, there's not that many people here and we're going into winter and everything is set and you don't have all this boat traffic and yep. the fish are just there waiting for you. And it's very Let's do pleasant. It. Okay. Do Let's it. do it. Awesome. Woohoo! So, well, thanks again, Mike. Hey, I really appreciate it. And for everybody listening out there, Thanks for staying with us uh, throughout the entire discussion. We appreciate your support uh, for Speckle Truth and Speckle Truth Podcast. Again, none of this happens without the support of our sponsors from Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky. Without your support, none of this is is possible. So thanks again to them. We hope to see you next time here at the Speckle Truth Podcast. And we always want to leave you with this one tidbit. Always remember to take what you need and release the rest. God bless.